you. And we'll close with 27D. Please be seated. Yeah, sorry, I made a last minute change to the bulletin and I forgot about it. So thank you so much for catching that. All right. Well, we are considering the letters of the Lord to the churches of Revelation. We turn this evening to chapter 2, verse 12, and to the letter to the church at Pergamum, or Pergamos, as the uh, New King James has it. Forgive me if I go back and forth between those, between those two by mistake. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things say, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans also, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this letter to us, that we also may have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that we too may be able to participate in the blessings of everlasting life and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray it in Jesus' name. Well, a few years after the letter I just read to you was written, another letter was written, and um, not too many miles to the north and east of Pergamum. It was a letter, in fact, written from the Roman, Roman governor, Pliny, to the emperor Trajan about the Christians in Asia. The governor writes, it is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. In the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. And those who persisted, I ordered executed. An anonymous document was then published containing the names of many persons accused of being Christians. Those who denied that they were Christians when they invoked the gods and offered prayer with incense and wine to your image and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. I judged that all the more necessary to find out what the truth was about them by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else about them. Yet the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, and that the established 
religious rights, long neglected, are being resumed. Hence, it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people could be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. Well, the emperor, for his part, wrote back, you have done well, my apprentice. Uh, well, that's just a fair summary of what he said. Good job. Compared to a situation like this, our problems and persecutions seem like small potatoes, don't they? And yet it was this afternoon that I decided I'd look on the news to see if I could find an illustration for you tonight. And I went to my favorite news site, <clears throat> notthebee.com. <laughs> and, uh, well, it didn't disappoint. There have been two articles posted today. Uh, the first was a video of a retired uh, military veteran in England who was being arrested by five policemen for his supposed homophobic Facebook posts that had, quote, caused someone anxiety, the police said. Uh, ironically, the, all that he'd posted was a picture, no text, just a, a, a picture of the rainbow slash trans flag uh, bent into a swastika, implicitly saying that the modern thought policers are acting like Nazis. <laughs> and he did seem to be vindicated in his post, I think. Uh, the other article's headline that was posted was this, 36 Nigerian Christians were kidnapped from their village by Islamic extremists this week. As I've mentioned to you, hundreds of attacks have left thousands of Christians dead or in slavery or worse, in Nigeria. Even though such things happen regularly, practically every week, our news sources don't report it and so they escape being labeled as Islamophobic. So even if we are not suffering at the same level as those Christians in Asia, we do recognize that there is something eerily contemporary about a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago, a church in a city like Pergamos that was proud of its sophistication but sensual and worldly and idolatrous in its outlook, a church that was being tempted indeed to accommodate itself to the morals of the surrounding culture, a church that had already been suffering persecution and a growing rift between church and society. I mean, what is there that we can't immediately identify with? So let me introduce the letter to you by telling you a little about this city of Pergamos. It was the capital city of Asia, and if Paris is called the city of lights, and uh, Las Vegas, Sin City, Chicago, the Windy City, Jesus says you're living in Satan's city, the place where Satan has his throne and dwells. Uh, it was quite a large city by the uh, standard of the day, with a population of almost 200,000, but it wasn't its political and economic achievement that had made it so famous. It was its religion. Pergamos was the center of no less than four ancient cults. A gigantic altar of Zeus looked down upon the city, ruins still there. It, it was also the home of the cult of Athena, Athena and Dionysius. It was the center of worship of Asclepios, the god of medicine, also called the savior, by the way, in Greek mythology, and his symbol was a serpent. In fact, you, some of you might know that symbol very well for the symbol that was adopted by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services 
and the standard symbol of medicine today is a staff of Asclepius with his symbol, the serpent, spiraled around it. Uh, Famous College of Medicine, by the way, also in that city. And interestingly, I found out this week that uh, our word parchment comes from the same word, uh, Pergamos, a couple of variations there. The city had an extraordinary library, second in the ancient world only to Alexandria. After the library at Alexandria had been damaged by Julius Caesar's exploits, Mark Antony seized the library at Pergamos, its collection of some 200,000 volumes, and gave it as a gift to his new wife, Cleopatra. Man, knows the ancient. Uh, Very good. Uh, That was all more than 100 years ago before this letter was written. Uh, The library continued, but it was insignificant after that. But, you know, it it was a city famous for its idolatry and its sophistication. It's identified, though, particularly as the place where Satan has his throne in all likelihood because it was the seat of Roman government in the province of Asia, or sometimes we say Asia Minor. Rome had already become a persecutor of Christians in the city, and not only a persecutor, but in fact a rival religion in its own right. Caesar was being worshipped there as a god. This began in Pergamum, and it there then spread to other provinces. As you remember the letter to, to Pliny, uh, Pliny, I read to you, hey, when I round up these Christians, first thing I have them do is curse Christ and offer a sacrifice to you, to your genius, to the bust of Caesar. Make sure these are telling the truth. Well, all this began with the first temple of the imperial cult in Asia, in this city, in 29 BC, to honor what they believed to be the divine emperor Augustus and the goddess Roma, or Rome personified. The whole city and its culture were shaped by its temples, its idolatry, and its sensual worship, enforced by the power of the beast of Rome. There had already begun martyrdom in Pergamum, probably as a result of a Christian's refusal to conform to emperor worship. We don't know. Uh, Certainly that was happening later. And it was at this very time that the word for witness, which some of you have as witness in your translation, took on a whole new meaning, as I explained last time, as the Greek word uh, martus comes right into our language as martyr. Witness began to have the other meaning of martyr. And it's against this background that we will consider how this city, the seat of Satan, sought to make the Christians conform using both a stick and a carrot. Do you get the reference, by the way? Not that all of you have seen buggies or been on farms or whatever here. You want to get a, want to get a horse to move? Want to get a mule to move? Well, you typically have two implements that'll do the work for you. One is a stick for the rear. One is a carrot for the front, right? Get them to move forward. First, the stick. Christ's letter to Smyrna that we read last week was warning them about a coming terrible persecution. In Pergamos, Jesus says it's already come. They've already witnessed their first martyrdom for the faith. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas was my faithful witness slash martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so the Lord begins by saying reassuringly, he not only knows the works that they do and the tribulation they endure, they know the trying, toxic environment in which they continually live and breathe. I know where you have to dwell. And of all the cities of Asia, this one was the most severely uh, toxic with pagan influence. If nothing else, it, me it meant that Satan was working through the ungodly political power of Rome to persecute God's people, especially, as I suggest, seeking to conform them to its worship. Well, it says the believers, for their part, have remained faithful to Christ. Faithful and bold. The martyrdom of Antipas might have made them go back or kept their lips silent, and who could have blamed them from a worldly perspective? But they did not let their own danger or the threat of martyrdom close their mouths or diminish their commitment to the Lord. And so it is that the stick, for its part, certainly stung, but it did not move the church. Now, John Bunyan was simply being faithful to the Bible when he depicted our pilgrimage to heaven as a lonely, steep, and difficult journey beset by dangers of every kind. Persecution is one of those recurring dangers, a real danger, as we considered it especially at length last time. But today, I'd like to concentrate on the other serious threat that was facing that church and ours today. Now, church history suggests that the kingdom of darkness is far, far more likely to gain ground by tempting the church to worldliness than by threatening it with death. Now, sometimes in history, the church in an area has been just completely made extinct. And, I mean, Jesus says, uh, you know, you get persecuted in this city. There's a time when you just have to flee to another. So we can understand how the church could occasionally be rooted out, virtually destroyed, by the means of the threat of death. However, far, far more powerful a weapon is the carrot, the lure, the temptation of Christians to receive the blessings and benefits of this world by conforming to worldliness. And about this danger, you notice, Jesus expresses great concern for the church at Pergamos, having briefly considered the stick we now come to the carrot. Verse 14, I have a few things against you because you've, you have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. By the way, that last part probably meaning that uh, just as the church in Ephesus was afflicted by the Nicolaitans, so you have those there, but that this is the same group. In other words, the Nicolaitans uh, are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. It's possible they're two different groups, but seems to be, in context, the same. And who is that Balaam guy? And why does the Lord bring that up? Let me tell you. Balaam is the most famous biblical example of an enemy who first tried to harm believers 
and failed, but then found great success by seducing them. Balaam is the representative leader of all those who promote compromise with the world through immorality and idolatry. Balaam was hired by the king of Moab, who trembled when Israel came to its borders. Uh, He'd hired this world-famous prophet to come and place a curse on Israel because he says, those whom you cursed are cursed. But as you remember, long story short, God turned their curse into a blessing three times. Balak demanded the prophet deliver a curse only to hear blessing come forth. And that finally in the fourth prophecy about the utter final victory of God's people. No weapon formed against you is going to prosper, assured the Lord. Well, Balaam told the king, King, you need to change your strategy. You need to stop attacking them and start inviting them. You need to stop frowning at them and start smiling and winking. You cannot overcome Israel by sorcery, but you can by sexuality. You will not overcome God's commitment to his people, but you may very well overcome God's people's commitment to him. And so Balaam's parting advice to Balak, recorded for us in Numbers 31, is the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, were enticed to trespass against the Lord. And as we read the history of that, we read how their their women invited the men of Israel to join them at their banquet, an idolatrous feast. And with idolatry, especially in the religion, the fertility cults of Canaan, came immorality. And we read, quote, the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Uh, It was a disaster. Huge number of people died. It was a, a great failure for the people of God. So what Balaam was to the old Israel, these Nicolaitans evidently are to the new Israel. They had brought such teaching into the church. Similar problem, by the way, manifested in Corinth uh, as the church there, you remember, was tempted to embrace the world's immorality, uh, including even eating at pagan temples. So here's the power of the carrot of the temptation. God had assured his people, no man will be able to stand against you. There's only one danger that you truly face. Not an enemy outside the camp. (laughs) They're not going to harm you. I'll make sure of that. But rather the enemy inside the camp. Your greatest danger is becoming your own enemy. Becoming like the enemy. Matthew Henry commenting, We are more endangered by the charms of a smiling world than the terrors of a frowning world. Those who have broken the fences of modesty will never be held by the bonds of piety. A fancy way to say What we have today in the church is the triumph of the Nicolaitan party and the doctrine of Balaam. The world is absolutely determined to pull the church into its deadly embrace. And when the stick has failed, the carrot will often succeed as God's people become their own undoing and lead themselves down the garden path. 
The church in Ephesus, we remember in the first letter, hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, verse 6, and they were commended for such a holy hatred. The Lord, for his part, says, I also hate them. Jesus uh, adds his uh, amen. But what was hated in Ephesus was being tolerated, at least, in Pergamos. And so the Lord calls the church to repent, verse 16, of its error and its evil. Let me consider this with you at some length and what it means for us today, then. It's hard to live in the darkness of a city like Pergamos. So much of everyday life was just filled with idolatry. I mean, you know, we, we don't think about it, but for, for them, you go to the market to buy some meat, all the meat has been sacrificed to idols. The food you ate, the coins you used, the holidays that were celebrated, the restaurants you frequented the business meetings. The guilds were often tied to the temples and to the cults. It, it was part of everyday life, these uh, uh, idolatrous commitments. And the great temptation for, Christian was to find, for the Christian was to find some way to accommodate himself to navigate through these difficult surroundings without leaving the world. And And idolatry went hand-in-hand with immorality. And the one was often the gateway to the other. Well, what were they saying in that day? We we don't know, but I I, I do know what evangelicals are saying now. That the best way to win the people of this world is not to separate from them, but to participate with them and to... Show them that we, you know, we're people with we're people too. Not judging them, for God will do that. Do you not judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Said the letter to the Corinthians. Fine. Well, we need to befriend them so we can witness to them. And what better place to befriend them than to share a meal with them at a temple, or participate with them in some ceremony of of Pergamum life? And an idol is nothing. And food is food. This was the situation you remember in Corinth, where the Christians were going to heathen temples, making these very arguments. Paul replied to them with considerable sharpness, "Uh, Yes, meat is meat, but do you think that you are above temptation? Flee idolatry. Flee sexual immorality. Sorry. here. The Christians were saying at Corinth, we have liberty to go to such a feast. Meat is meat, no matter who it's been offered to. An idol is nothing. There's no God but one. True, Paul says, do you think you're immune to temptation? Beloved, flee. The Christian church at any time and place will be tempted to try to find some theological justification, some way, somehow, that they can deny the faith or shave it in ways that will make it easier to negotiate society and commend us to culture in ways that may even seem laudable to other people. And the attraction of falsehood is that it bridges the distance that must otherwise open between Christians and non-Christians. And there is no greater danger in the history of the world than this lure of self-justification, this pull toward uh, 
immorality, uh, the appeal of attraction that, uh, by which we, we find ourselves sucked in. Much, much better to face a stick than a carrot. Well, in our day, we, we were reminded in uh, survey after survey that there are no, quote, well, I'm quoting one uh, report published on Newsweek, of all things, no observable differences between the moral behavior of professing Christians and the rest of America. Surveys reveal a nation where most claim to be religious, but few take their faith seriously. I mean, bad enough when Barna publishes that, but Newsweek, it's embarrassing. Every day, writes Barna, the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. Peter Gilchrist, columnist, comments, all the evangelism in the world from a church that is not herself holy and righteous will not be worth a hill of beans. Well, that is, that is true. In every time, in every season in the church's life, there are those that are seeking to accommodate especially its morals, especially its sexual morals, to the, the uh, surrounding culture. There seems to be plenty of theological excuse for such a thing. Paul has to answer the question in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He has to write to the Galatians warning them, don't use your opportunity as, excuse me, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. You are forgiven. You have liberty. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. Peter, dealing with this problem also in his second letter, writes, while some promise you liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. James has to say, look, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? The Lord himself says, you know, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons, and done many wonders in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so it's no surprise that here in Revelation chapter 2, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans comes up twice, which the Lord hates as it seeks to lead people into immorality. Um, Irenaeus, in his work against heresies, says that these Nicolaitans, quote, have led lives of unrestrained indulgence. And so everywhere where the gospel is preached, the gospel of grace and forgiveness, apart from works, the question has to be answered, well, why then shall we not sin that grace may abound? So I said that the greatest danger to God's people was from within, from unbelief and false teaching leading people into immorality inside the church. But I need to balance that by saying that the shape of that falsehood always is given from the outside. False teachers always can, can lure the church to compromise at the very point where we are most conflicting with the culture. Today it's LGBTQ and who knows what else. Heresies offer the way for Christians to remain Christians without having to bear the reproach of rejecting the culture's familiar and fashionable way of thought at the very point where it's most under attack. Heresies typically, typically form uh, a kind of Christianity that's acceptable to the world around. They draw their strength from the spirit of the age like a fire that rages 
through the city and gathering strength by sucking up the atmosphere all around. Heresies do the same thing in the church. Um, Lewis once gave a speech to the effect that every age also tends to set itself against those sins which it is in the least danger of committing. So we're still against sin, but only against the sins that we are least likely to commit. Cruel ages are against sentimentality. Licentious ages warn against puritanism. Postmodern ages warn against heresy hunters. We don't want to be too whatever. Heresies, as a rule, he points out, are not some absurd idea that a Christian can see at first glance. No, they are often insidious and powerful forms of falsehood that seem very reasonable in the culture and atmosphere of our day, that make us seem very wise and up-to-date, promoting a worldly accommodation, bringing in the ways of the world that seem so right and so fashionable. So what is our great temptation? Uh, is there some temptation for the church in America to conform to the attractions of Islam or Buddhism? No, you won't find that here. You'll find that in the Middle East. You'll find that in Asia. Those are the heresies that come in, the kind that bend our faith to suit the darkness of that culture. What do we face? Well, feminism is certainly a value in our culture, and so it is that the church is continually tempted in our age to find some way to accommodate itself to the culture's prejudice. Or consider another example I mentioned this morning, that Christians in this sentimental age cannot or will not tell the world about a God who judges, about a law that comes with wrath upon the evildoer. Such things would be perfectly fine to preach in the Middle East. They believe in that kind of God. But for Americans, well, we don't deny it, but we virtually always avoid it. We leave it out. Um, I watched a DVD recently by Tim Keller, one of the most well-known conservative Presbyterian ministers in the country, a man who's certainly saved many more people than me, so I want to have uh, some humility, but it's very discouraging. He's talking to unbelievers about what happens when uh, you die and you've never heard about Jesus. Keller says, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say. And, and I think, why would this man say such a thing? You know why he would say it because he's speaking to New Yorkers. And we live in a culture of relativism and pluralism. And we are always, always tempted to curb our faith at the very point that makes it sound the most reasonable to the world. And we are the most ready to denounce sins that our culture already hates. I mean, if I want to get up here and preach against uh, injustice and environmental degradation and so forth, I mean, I mean, who, who wants to see the destruction of the environment? I'm not. But, but those are the very things that would be concentrated on today in a church that's most captured by the spirit of the age. This is a problem in every generation. 
the cultural captivity of Christianity. The carrot. Beware the carrot. You kids don't have to eat your carrots. Tell your parents from now on. I've told you before about Francis Schaeffer in his last public appearance at the uh, booksellers convention uh, before he died in May of 1984. Dr. Schaefer was being treated for cancer at the Mayo and he went to the uh, religious broadcasters convention in nearby Minneapolis and he warned them that despite all that they had done in taking their stand, the American evangelical church was already being contaminated and compromised by a new spirit of the new age. And Schaefer's very last public words on the platform, his, his last words, as it were, ever spoken in public, were these three words. Accommodation, accommodation, accommodation. And he sat down. This is an enduring warning that we live in a relativistic culture where it is hard for people to conceive of there being one savior. We live in an immoral culture where people demand the right to follow all their natural and unnatural urges. That we live in a pluralistic culture in which tolerance and acceptance is a supreme virtue. And we must contend lest we allow heresies to slip in unawares, as Jude put it. There is no more intolerant book in the world in that case but the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, and there is no more narrow-minded man than Jesus. Now, in every age, the people say, well, the church must change or die. We have to embrace what is happening in the world, or we'll lose the next generation. And the irony is that the church that marries itself to the spirit of the age finds itself a widow in the next. We are not going to lose, we're not going to win the world, we're going to lose our souls if we become a Pergamite church. The society will not come to meet us, but we are drifting every day toward society. We need to be warned. The church has always been the most endangered to its accommodation, even as Israel of old with the uh, seductions of the um, of the Balaamites. All right. Well, I have just a moment to tell you a story. John Duncan, the Hebrew professor known as Rabbi Duncan in the second nineteenth century Scotland, uh, professor of Hebrew at New College. Um, he was a missionary to the Jews in Hungary. Anybody know the name of one of his most famous, probably his most famous convert? Starts with Alfred. Alfred Edersheim, you know, he was a convert of Rabbi Duncan, a uh, very famous Christian author. You don't know his books. He has a lot of wise reflection, uh, a Jewish view of Christianity and history. Um, reflecting on his many conversions with the Jews uh, and his conversations about them, Duncan once remarked, the Jews, when they read the New Testament, have often said to me, well, this is all very good, but Christians do not believe it themselves. Why should Jews? He realized the importance, not just of the word, but of integrity, not compromise, 
but integrity. If you need to go and speak to these people about such a touchy matter as changing their religion, a spirit of compromise will bring down both you and them. If Christians do not take their own faith seriously, why should anyone else? We need, on the one hand, to be familiar, therefore, with the influence of the ungodly. We need to be, be warned that this is our tendency. If you go into a smoky room, the atmosphere is very oppressive and offensive. You say, oh, how can anybody stay here? But you stay there for a couple of hours, and after a while, it seems perfectly normal. We will need to beware how we expose our minds to the, the wicked thoughts and philosophies of this world, often, often presented to us in a very seductive and attractive way. Paul warns, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion is light with darkness? He says, flee idolatry. Flee sexual immorality. We have on the one hand to uh, beware, as Proverbs warns, even starting down the path of the wicked. But once you're on that path, it is very difficult for you to get off. But secondly, we are to devote ourselves to renewing of our mind through the word and Christian fellowship. Edmund Burke said, when bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. We need to combine together. The ungodly combine, for their part, Psalm 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. And we realize the influence of peer pressure, so we need to give ourselves some godly peers. Proverbs 13, he who works with the wise men will be wa walks with the wise men will be wise, but the companion, companion of fools, fools will be destroyed. We also need to devote ourselves to, to fellowship and mutual encouragement, communion with the Lord and his people through and in his world, word. Well, this is uh, the promise that is given. There is, I'm sorry, I should say first, uh, always a th threat. Um, hey, if you do not repent, I'm going to come to you quickly. The coming of the Lord, not the second coming, but coming in judgment, one of many comings in judgment of the Lord Jesus, even in this book, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, the double-edged sword, which is the word of God. But the promise, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone on which a new name is written that no one himself, no one but him knows. So this is a, this is a difficulty. What is being promised here? Uh, this white stone with this new name, hidden manna? I could give you all the options. I, I actually have them all in my notes here, but uh, really the commentators follow all, all over themselves. Could be this, could be the other, could be this thing. We, we don't know for sure. I will point out that white and new are always used uh, in revelation, it seems, of uh, the Lord and especially of the life to come, making all things new and all the new Jerusalem things and so forth. And so following the pattern of all the other letters, it seems certain that this is a promise of 
eternal life. Every other letter has a clear promise of eternal life in one way or the other. Every other letter also points to something that is mentioned again later in the book of Revelation. But the stone and the manna, the new name, these things are not mentioned before, uh, but mentioned again, I should say. So we can uh, speculate that one of the things that were, white stones were used for is an invitation such as to a banquet and uh, sometimes a name written on the, on the white stone. And so perhaps this is an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we do see later on. Can't be sure. But there is the promise of communion with the Lord Jesus and the joy of everlasting life with him. Well, in conclusion, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do as he likes, Thomas Huxley said. We find ourselves cut off from Christian fellowship, uh, not walking closely with the Lord ourselves, and we find ourselves too often seduced by the attractions and allurements of the world's carrot. We need to beware individually. We need to be on guard as a church. False teaching would never advance in the church without the consent of the people. And the safety of this church will depend upon a community of believers caring and encouraging one another, another, another to be alert to the wiles of the devil, to know when false teaching shows up, usually sooner rather than later, that we must remain faithful to the Lord and his word. You as uh, members of a Christian congregation are to hear what the Spirit says to the church at Pergamos. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This uh, sense of responsibility comes in choosing leaders who care for nothing so much as the preservation of fidelity to Christ, devotion to his cause and to his word. Many churches have failed to do this through the ages and have paid the terrible price, even as the church in Pergamos today is gone. The better that you know the Bible's teaching, the more that you have incorporated it into your life, the more that you have proved it in the secret places of your heart, the more that you have daily stood on it in the face of of tribulation, the more that you will be able to die for Christ, having taken up your cross daily. Follow him. The uh, more earnestly you seek fellowship with devoted brothers and sisters, the more strong you will be to have a culture that stands against the culture of this world. Well, the more that we see your life built upon the foundation of Christ, the less willing you will ever be to hear a church teaching, however subtly, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the, uh, um, the, uh, the Nicodemites, the Nicolaitans, the, uh, the, the doctrine of the, the Balaamites, undermining and contradicting the truth of Holy Scripture, it's a call that we should devote ourselves and, as Jesus puts it, overcome. And to him who is victorious, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes this great obstacle, this temptation, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone, and I will give him a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. So may it be. Well, let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us in this evil day, that we might be a people not only strong against persecution, but especially unmoved by the carrot of temptation. We do feel the pull and the allure, we confess, and we long to be uh, uh, received and to be liked by the world. We pray that you would give us an understanding. Give us that same spirit.